I will be reading today's scripture in, in, in Spanish and in English. Segunda de Corintios 6, 11 a 13. Nuestra boca, oh Corintios, les ha hablado con toda franqueza. Nuestro corazón se ha abierto de par en par. Ustedes no están limitados por nosotros, sino que están limitados en sus sentimientos. Ahora bien, en igual reciprocidad, les hablo como a niños. Ustedes también abran de par en par su corazón. 2 Corinthians 2, 6, 11-13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. The word of the Lord. Giving honor to God the Father, and to God the Son, and to God the Holy Spirit, and also to Pastor Gerald for this opportunity to serve the people he is called to shepherd, and to all the elders for their faithful work and their kindnesses toward me and us. And to all of you, good morning. It is wonderful to be with you in the presence of our Savior, especially as we look forward to participating in the table together today. Really quickly, if you would allow me before I pray, may I put in a really quick plug for everyone to join us on our workday on the 17th as we serve our community and our partners and as we do work here at the church, as Christy said, we are looking forward to an all-hands-on-deck day. And so it will be good to serve and work beside one another. So mark it out on the calendar. Make sure you get the T-shirt. Come for the donuts. Stay for lunch. <laughs> Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we bless you that our identity rests in you. Thank you that we have the promise of a new name that will be identified with Christ. Thank you that you are already working new life in us. Continue that work in the preaching and hearing of your word today. May your spirit move powerfully upon every heart and mind and will. May you do it so that your name is glorified all over the earth where all of our mission partners serve, where people have yet to hear the name of Jesus. Please, Father, use this to make us bolder and more courageous and more zealous in living our faith before the people of the world and proclaiming the gospel. Now, Father, bless this part of our time together and magnify the name of Christ. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the spring of my eighth grade school year, my parents had me take an aptitude test to qualify to enroll in our county's top science and tech high school program. My mom who seemed to me to be driving the push for me to take the test, told me to take it 
just to see how I would do. And with cocky confidence, I did. Not knowing my parents' full plans for me. I took the test and got into the school easily. But that didn't matter to me. I did not want to go to that school. I did not want to go to a school that will require me traveling from the center part of our county to the northern part of the county. And for me to be among a crowd where I would know few people. See, I was then a socially awkward, scrawny build, bullied child with few friends who just wanted to go to the feeder school where the friends that I did have would be matriculating. When I was accepted into the science and tech program, however, my mother said I was going and there would be no argument for anything else. I felt trapped, tricked, totally misunderstood and unheard by my parents. I spent the next three years trying to work through these thoughts and feelings. And it was displayed in the forms of crashing my grades, denying my ethnic identity, and wanting to make my attire look better than everyone else's. My behavior was so different than what I displayed up until that point in life that my parents went to my little brother and asked him if I had started doing drugs. <laughs> Substance abuse was not the issue. Instead, I had not given my mom my intellectual and emotional consent, and certainly not my volitional assent, to determine for me the environs of my social emotional, intellectual, and every other educationally related aspect of my life for the following four years. At that time, my mom never offered me a satisfactory reason for the decision, and my dad didn't really add any apologetic either. My mom never said something like, we want you to have the best life has to offer. And going to the top school affords you a better chance at this than the feeder school. Or, your father and I love you and have made many sacrifices and fought many battles for you to have this grand opportunity. She didn't say something like, we are looking out for you both now and down the road when you will be 30 or 40, or 50 years old, please, son, embrace what we are doing for you. Embrace us. This is for you. All my mom wanted was my success in life. American dream success. Family 
success. Rise above America's racist history, success. To be where I am in life now, success. She and my dad had and continue to give themselves to this very thing. But without mom and dad giving me that emotional, experiential, hopeful piece of their motivation, I never gave myself over to what they were doing. And it made for many family conflicts. And for me, many struggles and a pushing away of my parents in my heart until about my second year of college. It's painful to give yourself fully to someone in a relationship for their good while the other one is withholding part of herself or himself from you. Yet in many relationships, we do so in the hopes for the best life for the one not fully receiving us or our efforts for their good. The Apostle Paul encountered a church withholding their full trust from Paul, withholding their full assent to the life he was living before them. The Lord has placed Paul's words to that church in the scriptures, knowing that members at local assemblies like Calvary Memorial might have trouble giving their full effectual consent to the complex calling and challenges of the Christian life. We constrain our ascent away from those presenting to us what this scary, unpredictable, yet hopeful and joy-filled life offers. To counter this in us and in the Corinthians, Paul offers an invitation. He offers to us in these words an invitation to an unconstrained Christian life. That is, the full Christian life modeled by a church's leaders with tenderness and embraced by a church's members without reluctance. Let me say that again. The full Christian life as modeled by a church's leaders with tenderness and embraced by a church's membership without reluctance. To do this, in these words, Paul sets before us three things. Number one, an invitation to an unconstrained Christian life requires church leaders to expose ourselves candidly. In 611, Paul says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. As Pastor Gerald has been explaining every week that we have been in 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian believers have become captivated with the lives of the so-called super apostles. The super apostles, who we know now are not really super, are those leaders in the Corinthian congregation presenting themselves as the true apostles who are greater than the apostle Paul 
his emissaries, and his companions. They are polished, whereas Paul appears before them battered and bruised. They have riches and say their message is something worth paying for, whereas Paul wants to give his message away freely, seemingly because it's not worth anything. The supers have letters of recommendation credentialing them to the Corinthians. The only letter Paul offers is the work of God through the apostles in the lives of the Corinthians. The super apostles seem to have Jesus plus everything this present world offers as accomplishment and success. Whereas Paul can't even show up in Corinth when he says he is coming supposedly because other gospel ministry has delayed him. So the Corinthians have decided that they do not want the Christian life presented by Paul and his companions. We'll have none of that. To follow Paul's Christ means little to nothing to show for achievement in this world. No. Instead, the Corinthians want the Christ of the super apostles that has little suffering and much accomplishment. To this, Paul says... Yeah, Corinth, you're right. That's what my gospel message is offering. But note that we have told you everything about our lives candidly. We have let you see our struggles, hardships, and opposition, and have related it all to the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have not painted for you a rosy picture or offered a Christianity that is for the credentialed and polished only. We have presented what following Christ looks like in a broken world, in the real world. You have seen our true motives, goals, intentions, and purposes towards you. Moreover, Paul says, we have received you in our hearts. Paul's use of Corinthians when he addresses them shows the warmth of his tone toward them. For he only addresses churches like this when he is feeling deeply emotional about an issue before them. Like when he says, oh, Galatians, you fools, who has tricked you? He has deep felt emotion for the Galatian believers. And here he has it for the Corinthians. He and his team have been of one heart expressing their reception of the Corinthians as their own. And they have done this despite the Corinthians' many congregational misdeeds and the Corinthians' choice of the super apostles over them. There is no end to the examples of the crisis of moral integrity among leaders before us. In almost every field, we find leaders who use their positions only as self-promoting platforms and their constituents only as tools for personal gain, even immoral gain. We find this to be so in politics 
education, business, entertainment, and sports, and even, sadly, in churches. So when you come in here, how do you know who it is safe to follow? In the church, who claiming to be a mouthpiece for God is portraying before us a life that matches what he or she proclaims and a life that also matches the life Jesus calls us to live according to the scriptures? I used to say to the congregations I served that if the pastor is preaching the word of God faithfully, and there is no evidence or accusation of him giving false teaching, and there is no evidence or accusation of immoral or unethical behavior, of foolish decision-making or family failure as measured correctly, then follow the man as he preaches Christ and follow his Christ. That is a tall ask for it is very risky. So if you are a skeptic, I want you to know as one who has more than three decades of both ministry experience and marriage, and as one who is always concerned about the spiritual health of my home and who has no time for charlatans, I am here in this congregation largely because the pastor and the people with which he surrounds himself display the utmost integrity and have the utmost love for us, the people of this church. And largely because the pastor gives us fresh, spiritually enriched bread from the scriptures Sunday to Sunday. If he didn't, I would not sit idly to the detriment of my and my family's spiritual health because spiritual health affects all things if the pastor and the church are doing their job correctly. So if you have been sitting in the pews, reluctant to embrace what you have heard coming from this pulpit or to jump into body life, because you don't know if this is a sham waiting to be exposed, you can drop your guard here. We are not perfect at Calvary Memorial, but we are vulnerable and transparent. You can see our pain and our joy, our faithfulness and our repentance, our assurance and humility, and our power used in service to the weak rather than the abuse of the weak. If we fail, point it out, and we will listen and strive to change. We are doing our best to present to you vulnerable lives in the vein of Jesus and to receive everyone on the same plane regardless of who you are. We strive for open hearts here. Number two, an invitation to an unconstrained Christian life requires church leaders to clarify the Christian life with all of its realities. 
6.12 says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. Paul acknowledges the Corinthians' reluctance to follow his team rather than team super apostles. He makes a nice play on the word restricted to get at what is going on in their hearts, minds, and wills. If I were to provide you a gloss or a paraphrase of this verse, it would say something like this. You are not restricted in what you imagine would be a more prosperous life because of us, but because you have not given yourselves unconstrained to follow the gospel lives that we live. Instead, you are following the false prosperity of the super apostles. With these words, Paul clarifies for the church two realities, one on the goal of life itself and the other on the place of the Corinthians' emotional reserve. First, the concern that the Corinthians have about Christianity restricting life is misplaced. They fear missing out on life if they follow what Paul has presented as the Christian life. Who wants to be cast down like Paul and find victory in not being totally destroyed by his opponents? If they follow Paul, they will be restricted or constrained in the present world. It will surely mean for them persecution, Great financial and material challenges, false accusation and hardships. So Paul pokes at their concern about being restricted in this life by following Jesus. Second, Paul clarifies that that restriction comes because of the Corinthian believers' own withholding of their affection toward Paul and his companions. Paul, in effect, says to them, don't blame us for what would appear to be a restriction in living. Blame yourselves because you have not given yourselves fully to us to see what this life is really like. New Testament scholar Linda Belleville notes that the verb used twice for restricted comes from two words that mean narrow space. In the passive verbal form which you have here restricted, it means to be in a narrow place or to be cramped for space. Here, writes Belleville, the sense is that the Corinthians have become constrained in their feelings for Paul so that he is finding himself gradually squeezed out of their hearts. In other words, the restriction is on the side of the Corinthians who are rejecting the gospel Paul preaches. The restriction is not on Paul. Often in churches, we withhold giving ourselves fully to the guidance and direction of leadership for many earthly reasons, thinking we will be happier another way, but not knowing that it is to our spiritual 
detriment. Our withholding could be due to a vast difference between our ages and that of much of the church leadership. Or because we have been harmed by authorities in the past or elsewhere. For some of us, a love of individualism makes it seem that giving one's full trust to leaders is controlling, dangerous, and archaic. Others of us just have the wrong goals for life, and the Jesus of the church's leaders doesn't fit into our goals. So we then give part of ourselves to the church, part of our lives, part of our affections, part of our wills. We might give strong intellectual consent, but the emotions and will are slow to follow. God is cultivating more than our minds, however. He is shaping our thinking to think after Christ, that is true, but he is also shaping our hearts to be like Jesus' heart, and he is shaping our wills to be available to whatever he wills and summons us to do. The Lord is at work in the deepest parts of our beings where all of our fears, longings, hopes, dreams, wounds, pains, disappointments, Angers, skills, knowledge, and love of wealth reside. He is after what motivates us to live each day, to go to work each day, to spend our leisure and our retirement this way or that way. He wants what makes us shy away from serving, what makes us refrain from participating in intimate settings like Small groups, you know, we have small groups here and we'd love to have you in one. What makes us slow to forgive and what makes us doubt that he will ever provide justice for us or heal our sorrows. Part of the way he gets to those deep-seated, unseen, hidden parts of our lives is for us to see in those who are leading us that the fully surrendered life is worth yielding our whole selves to. We cannot do this with part or parts of our hearts and wills closed off to leadership. We can't keep leadership out of our business at arm's length or place limits on just how much we will let others into our lives if we want to have the Lord do his Jesus-cultivating work in each one of us. Our God is not presenting following Christ as a buttoned-up shirt event for people with no blotches on any aspect of their lives. Instead, our God is presenting Christ through a path that begins with acknowledging the messiness of our sin. Sin is sins that we could possibly ignore by our relative successes, by withdrawal from life, or by focusing on the obvious wrongs of others. Our God's good news walks through the shattered parts of life, the parts that we want to fix on our own because we think that helping for, asking for help makes us look weak. 
Our God provides for us a savior who had to suffer wounding and rejection as the road to victory and vindication. Like my mom, looking down the road to my life in my 40s and 50s to see what I needed to experience educationally to achieve a good life in this world, this is the only Christian life we can offer you in all our preaching, teaching, modeling, and service in order for you to live a God-pleasing Christian life in this world. We cannot offer you Jesus plus good health. We dare not offer you Jesus plus obedient children. We cannot offer you Jesus plus job security, friendly neighbors, political power, educational achievement, athletic victory, artistic award, family acceptance, or even a numerically growing ministry. Jesus did not die on the cross and rise from the dead and call people to follow him in like service for any of the aforementioned reasons. He came to offer the knowledge of the glory of God through his own faith to the nations, including places that are full of war and don't have peace, that are run by tyrannical people and not by democracy, that are impoverished rather than wealthy, and that are hostile to Jesus rather than having the history of a Judeo-Christian social presence. Living the gospel proclaimed by us and our mission partners, from Oak Park to Germany and Paraguay, from Austin to Costa Rica, has no Western promises attached to it. It has Jesus only. The one to which we must subscribe our full affections as we follow those leading us to do the will of God. Number three, an invitation to an unconstrained Christian life offers the congregation an opportunity for embracing. In verse 13, Paul says, in return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Again, listen to the tenderness with which Paul speaks to the Corinthians. My little children, please, please, please widen your lives to us in the way that we have widened our hearts to receive you. English editors add hearts for interpretive clarity, but the word is not actually there as represented by the italics in some of your translations. Paul just asked them to widen in reciprocation to the apostles' widening of their hearts toward the Corinthians. As pastoral staff members and elders and deacons, we stay aware that our life choices are what you, the members, will follow once you have given yourselves over to us mentally, emotionally, and intellectually. 
and volitionally. We have need to live Christ, to live Christ before you as if you are like our own children to us. Thinking of you in this way, as if you are our own children, has significance to everything we do in our service to you. Churches and believers in churches are simply reflections of the emphases and omissions of their leadership. In five more years, under Pastor Gerald, all of us that continue here will have lives reflecting what he has taught us week to week, what happens at meals together, what happens in the ABFs, elective classes, small groups, and life stage ministries. All of these things are led by people being led by Pastor Gerald and the elders and the ministry staff. All of us are children being shaped by the lives of spiritual parents. Paul calls us to be intentional in embracing the candid, receptive lives that we have seen lived before us. But all we can do as leaders is offer. We can't make anybody do anything. We can't make anybody grow. We can make appeals tenderly like you are our own, which you are in one sense. But in another sense, you are not fully our own until we have all of your hearts, your sense of trust, your granting of us grace, your affirmation of ministry programming, your looking past small mistakes in love while having the freedom to challenge bigger or recurring mistakes kindly with that same love. You have the freedom to do that. As the ask here get bigger and bigger, like many in our announcements today. While your personal, familiar, and collective needs grow larger and larger, we will invite you more and more to embrace us as we embrace Jesus. We will need you to embrace we who lead when we call you to join us in serving asylum seekers, refugees, and displaced migrants. When we ask you to exercise courage to share your faith as members of a church whose message on sexuality is not in sync with the communities, or as we keep pressing you to have conversations on race and gender that must be had if we will be a church for all people that proclaims a gospel to and for all people. We are going to offer you the opportunity to embrace everything the way that we all embrace game on. If there's one thing we all embrace here, it's game on. Here, game on has your buy-in like Swifties going to Soldier's Field. It just does. Everybody loves game on. But why? Because you see the benefit to yourself, to your children and grandchildren, and to the children of many others in our community. We appeal to you to do the same when the benefits are not obvious or immediate.
To live an unconstrained Christian life in this sense, in the sense in this passage, I would suggest that we cannot think of Christianity as something that is for the normal, the convenient, the scheduled, the stressless, the unchallenging, and the resourced life. The Christianity Paul candidly paints to the Corinthians is of a life that is abnormal, inconvenient, unscheduled, stressful, challenging, and very under-resourced. It is for relying on the power of God to serve those who do not have so-called normal or convenient lives. It interrupts our schedules because Service to others needs to happen when their lives are disrupted, not when we can fit people into our carefully managed and manicured lives. It is for the things that drain us, stress us out, call upon us again and again to give ourselves sacrificially. It is the call to become for someone else the earthly embodied love of Jesus faithfully, compassionately, enduringly, and steadfastly. Many of us have enough resources that it is hard to imagine a Christian practice that relies totally on the help of fellow believers as the instruments of God. We tend to look down on people who cannot help themselves even a little bit, who cannot stop crying out for help sometimes, who can't just do for themselves, who can't get to the level of family, financial, or friendship prosperity at which we currently reside. They just need more discipline or to work harder, we, we think to ourselves. Right. That thinking really sounds like something that would come from the mouth of the super apostles for their very criticism of Paul was that he had no earthly prosperity to show for all that he was doing. And that if he really was a servant of the Lord, it would have shown up in his appearance, his letters of recommendation, his speech, and coming to see the Corinthians without interruption. That Paul, so was their thinking, just needs to get over himself and work harder. In contrast, Paul says, all I can say to you is our yes means yes, and our no means no. For we are following him in whom all promises are yes and amen. We are offering a ministry of reconciliation only as ambassadors. We have been put on display in the most miserable way, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Yes, Paul says, our lives are perplexed, and we open them to you so that you will embrace us and join us in this afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down life because the weight or weightiness of glory will be enough for us when we are in the very presence of Jesus. When I was 47 years old, I was riding in the car with my oldest daughter, who was in her young 20s at that time. And I was also riding with my parents. 
And as we were riding along, my mom provided me the question that many of you would love to have been or be asked and have the opportunity to answer. Eric, if you could change something about the way your father and I raised you, what would it be? Almost instantly, I replied, Mom, I wouldn't change a thing. My mom pressed into me more and said, oh, come on, you can tell us, it's okay, what would you change? I replied, no, mom, I mean it. You and dad did a great job raising me and my brother. I wouldn't change a thing. Silently, we rode on. When the car got to our destination and we stepped out, my daughter pulled me aside and said to me, Dad, I heard what you said to Grandma, but I don't know if I can say the same for you and Mommy. <laughs> I looked at her with a slight smile and said to her, I know, baby. But when you get to be my age, you will. I am not saying that to you in any way to absolve all parents of all problems in raising you. For some parents have done horrendous things for which they should have present accountability. But I am telling you this so that you understand that the unconstrained life says, I will follow the full ramifications of the gospel because Jesus will be enough for me. We saw him rejected by Herod in his infancy, but that child who will rule the nations will be enough for me. They tried to throw him over a cliff when he announced his public ministry. Yet as the rock and fortress for his people, that Jesus will be enough for me. He was beaten and flogged, stripped, and crucified publicly. He didn't have the luxury of having crucifixion behind closed doors or to ask that it be done privately. Yet the wounds by which he heals our souls, that will be enough for you and me. And Jesus did all of that so that you and I could see death swallowed up in victory, shame overcome with his glory, rejection by people wiped away by the Father's acceptance of us, and our fears overcome by the power of a resurrected life. Jesus, without constraint, but with perplexity and affliction, is enough for everything in life for every one of us. And when we behold him and all he calls us to be in this present world, one day we will see that we wouldn't change a thing. Father, thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. that looks broken and bleak oftentimes as we walk with you, 
holding intention, present joys, and the hope of heaven. Remind us of who you are in Christ for us. Remind us of the inheritance that is ours in him. That exceedingly great power that Christ is for us. And heal the most wounded, downtrodden, and disappointed among us. Deliver today. Now, God, remind us that our promises reside in one who is the yes and amen for all of us until your return. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.